Phoenix Extravaganza was a member of the House of Extravaganza in 1988. She won a number of trophies and competitions at balls and had dreams of one day becoming a model. Her life was cut short four days before Christmas when she was strangled to death. Today, we are going to be talking about the ballroom community and the transphobic climate in the United States and ask ourselves, why wasn't her case given more attention? Hi, everyone. Thanks for stopping by our table of disappointment. This is How They Got Away, the show where we discuss the unsatisfying endings to your favorite unsolved or unpunished true crime and corporate greed stories. My name's Annalise. I'm your host for today. I'm joined by my co-host. Kelsey. And by our guest today. Hi, everyone. I'm the only guest again today because Stephanie is still very busy. It's Anna. I miss Stephanie. So <laughs> Stephanie has left us, unfortunately, again, but being. she's moving, so it's okay. <laughs> For the time being. <laughs> so today's episode um, was, I got like the idea when I was watching Paris is Burning. If you haven't seen Paris is Burning, I highly recommend it. It's all about uh, the ball scene in New York City in like late 1980s. It's very interesting. So to start, I wanted to kind of provide a little bit of context in terms of LGBTQIA plus history, specifically transgender history around the 1980s and 1990s in the United States to kind of give us an idea of what was going on when this was happening. Because we weren't alive then. No. <laughs> Goo gaga, yeah. This is a little before our time. <laughs> Not that much, though, and that's, like, what's so scary about when people talk about, like, the issues today, and they're like, and some pe there's, like, this attitude that it's so much better than it was, and it's also, like, but we're still talking about the same exact issues. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Just to varying degrees. <laughs> so, homophobia and transphobia has a long history in the United States. The Stonewall Boo. Riots in 1960... <laughs> True! <laughs> Imagine being homophobic and transphobic. That's embarrassing. Cringe even. <laughs> the Stonewall Riots in 1969 and the work done by activists had led to significant changes in terms of civil rights and building up protections against discrimination at the state level. At this time, and at this time, the 1980s, same-sex marriage was still illegal. For transgender people, there was a constant struggle just to be recognized, period, which we still see today. I feel like I forget so easily how, how like, it was not at all that long ago that gay marriage got passed. And it feels like mm -hmm. such a given nowadays, but it's very much not. Mm-hmm. As you may have heard before, many progressive groups, including feminist, gay, and lesbian activists, would try to distance themselves from the transgender issues. Um, in particular, Janice G. Raymond, a feminist ethicist, published a book entitled The Transsexual Empire in 1979. In this book, Raymond essentially argues that transgender people are reinforcing gender stereotypes and that they are products of the patriarchy trying to destroy women that those transitioning female to male were traitors and that those transitioning male to female were, and this is horrible guys, um, rapists of the women's space. Ew, turf moment. That makes Ugh. me think of those conservative people who their argument for not having uh, 
just everybody bathrooms is that they believe that men would go into women's bathrooms for the express purpose of sexual assault. Like, it's the exact same argument 40 years later. <sighs> it also makes me think of how I have heard that argument before, that being transgender is just, like, reinforcing gender stereotypes, which is a horrific way to look at it. Yeah. I think our just understanding of gender is so young that there's like people don't really have like a good education on gender yet like you don't get a good education in school about gender for sure and then whatever you learn is socially which can really vary depending on where you grow up and who raises you so i feel like I'm not saying I agree with it because I do not, but also like I can understand how people who don't have a lot of education around gender can kind of make that conclusion. This book was well received and respected by mainstream media and severely damaged the transgender community. This it was essentially a book just filled with transphobia and hate speech. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. In 1980, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> in 1980, the American Psychiatric Association published the DSM-3 with the diagnosis of gender identity disorder included under psychosexual disorders, which continued to push the narrative that transgender people were just mentally ill. We're on the DSM-5 now, I believe, and I think like it wasn't until like really recently that even just being gay was taken off the list of like mental disorders so that also is not shocking to me yeah it tracks unfortunately around this time the Boral majority a christian right group aggressively positioned president jimmy carter to halt advancement of gay rights and eventually their ally ronald reagan was elected president the group continued to grow the anti-gay sentiment in america no a conservative white man who could have seen this coming? <laughs> Interest. Oh, oh my god, how could this ever be? Oh. I gasp and drop my, like, dainty little- I can't, I can't. I was gonna do, like, a whole thing, but I can't. <laughs> I was just thinking, like, a little, like, handkerchief. Oh, dropping the handkerchief, but I can't. There's more than two genders out there. Fans myself oh. with ridiculously large fan. Who could that be? <laughs> two genders is already enough. Three genders is a handful, and you're telling me there's more? Oh, my poor, southern, fragile, delicate, what do they say? Nature? <laughs> what do they say? Uh, Intuitive. Sensibility? No. Sensibilities, yeah. My, my delicate, southern, <laughs> oh, it might be constitution. I don't know. Well, obviously, we're not southern, and I don't really know what that is. I don't even know if they talk like that anymore. I don't think so, but, you know. <laughs> It's funny. <laughs> I think you're just thinking of Gone with the Wind. <laughs> I mean, essentially, I'm just trying to remember what weird Georgia stuff they're saying. Georgia has not changed since Gone with the Wind. <laughs> Georgia has not changed one bit, and that needs to change. Anyways, uh... Of course we can't talk about this time period without discussing the HIV-AIDS epidemic, which became prevalent in 1981. It was labeled as the gay plague since it was mostly seen affecting gay men. Transgender people were also amongst the hardest hit. 
the HIV AIDS epidemic was so ignored by the U.S. government that President Reagan didn't even say the word AIDS publicly until 1985 after 12,000 Americans had died. Oh. So do you remember like three years ago when COVID, like the whispers first started of it maybe being something serious, but everybody was like, no, it'll be fine. We can handle it. Flatten the curve. You know, we're so evolved now. We won't let like an epidemic or a pandemic spread. And then the entire globe shut down and then there was a pandemic and millions of Americans died and people still continue to die to this day. And then monkeypox hit the U.S. not nearly as badly for sure, but then immediately there was this narrative that it only affected gay men. So people didn't think that they could get affected by it at all if they weren't gay, even though people could get it just from like touching surfaces that had infected fluid on it and it's just like wow we've learned absolutely nothing. was that COVID? nothing was that also nothing COVID? or was that like the monkeypox thing well covid we thought you could get from surfaces it was monkeypox like it was kind of like it was a twofer because it's like okay we think we're so well evolved in terms of like understanding health crises and also like understanding there's not this weird social bias like diseases aren't like I'm only going to affect gay people because that's what my sensibilities that like viruses don't follow those kinds of <laughs> they just biases. go is that a body mine now I'm going to pay the lease and I'm going to pay off my <laughs> mortgage unlike well I look at this economy <laughs> no I thought you were going to mention when like uh the government didn't do anything about the whole HIV AIDS thing because they were like, oh, like, we don't need to do anything. They'll all, like, die off. And then I think I could also be making this up, but I think there was, like, a tweet where, like, someone who was conservative wrote a very similar tweet like, oh, we're not going to really do anything because maybe hopefully it'll kill off, like, a lot of the blue party or something. Or, like, it's not directly uh, about gay people in this sense, but, like, that's... Ew? Who has that mentality? Like, yeah, I'm not gonna do anything, and hopefully they'll die off. Like, COVID and um, HIV. So for HIV, they were like, oh, we're not gonna do anything about it because maybe it'll kill the gays off. It's kind of deal. And then when COVID hit, uh, the Republicans or conservatives were like, oh, we won't really do anything. Hopefully that, like, it'll kill off, you know, the liberals, quote-unquote which is weird. I do remember that. That was definitely a thing, which was funny because it was, and it definitely was not like a fully 100% only this, but like there did seem to be more liberals who were taking the mask mandate seriously than there were conservatives. So I don't know what their logic was around that. I also remember there was like, I don't remember what denomination, I, but there was like a religious leader who tweeted that COVID was God's punishment for gays. <gasps> and yeah. then like, three weeks later he got COVID and everyone was like okay man the lord said it sounds like you're telling on yourself the lord said that and there definitely was at the time and there definitely was at the time of AIDS the idea that this was punishment for sinners which is time is a flat circle we've learned absolutely nothing in the last 50 or even 100 years yeah so all that to say the climate that we come into not that different in some ways different but not entirely (laughs) Yippee! 
thumbs down. That's the thing about it is that like you think you're going to be better because things have changed, but it's then it just turns into we're going to do the exact same thing, but at least everybody has a smartphone for this. Yeah. At least we can all tweet about it. At least I can tweet about it. Yippee. <laughs> so shifting gears, let's talk about the ballroom community that Venus was a part of. So the ballroom so, scene can be traced back. Before you start that, to... when you say ballroom, do you mean like in like ballroom dancing? I am getting into that. I am just oh, about to okay. Give her a minute. Give her a minute. She's getting there. I'm going into this fully expecting a masquerade type ball. So if it's anything <laughs> I mean, other than yeah, that, yeah, yeah. I might be disappointed. You'll get it in the next two sentences. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> So the ballroom scene can be traced back to the late 1800s. One source said 1869. Notably, there was Harlem's Hamilton Lodge, number 710, which post-Civil War would regularly host drag balls. Drag balls, ballroom, ball community. That is what we're talking about. I love when conservatives are like, I want to go back to the old days when people didn't dress up and drag or we're gay and then there's this stuff where it's like oh no people were very much having drag balls all the way back in the civil war times oh yeah you just didn't yeah. know about it so the main attraction of these balls were the men who dressed up as women to be judged in a pageant style competition it is also important to note that some women would also participate by dressing up as men it was just fewer numbers Ulysses drag race. <laughs> it like is the Confederate drag race. Drag race was inspired by the ball scene. They, if you have seen Drag Race or know of Drag Race, they mention Paris is burning quite. Which a is, bit. I mean, points at RuPaul. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So attendees to these um, drag balls were varied in race, gender, and sex. But it was mostly African-American and Latinx scene. Drag ball started to become more taboo and illegal in the early 19th century. And it was, it was driven further underground because at first I'm imagining that most people thought it was just kind of funny. And then conservatives started looking at it closer and squinting and went, mm, that seems like something I should be opposed to. They really said, are colored people I also can't imagine that they knew about it, like, right away. That's what I'm saying. They probably like, just I'm thought people, like... I'm not inviting Kyle to my drag race. <laughs> Kyle knows no. what he did. Chad over in the corner at church is not going to be invited. They said, you're not coming to the barbecue. Bye. And they were just like, how come... How come I'm not invited? Oh, I don't get it, guys. You should totes let me in. Them... Made it illegal because they didn't get to come. You guys bullied me, <laughs> and I feel oppressed as a minority. Them, okay. Oh my god. Interesting, <laughs> but okay. All right. Hmm. Hmm. So all of this was occurring during the Harlem Renaissance, which is when a lot of black you mean the Renaissance. You can say Renaissance. I've never heard it's it said that way. Renaissance. That sounds so like a drag name. Thing. Um, it's me. Oh my god! Hello yes, everyone, it's me, Renaissance. <laughs> anyway, 
Um, the Harlem Renaissance is when a lot of Black families were moving into the area, and so it created this kind of center for Black culture, which led to an incredible explosion of creativity and self-expression. And so it was just a great time to vibe and be creative. <laughs> and then, of course, somebody else who is a party pooper finds out about it. Oh, yeah. Man. I'm waiting. And, like, sh and goes, mm, no. Despite this being a mostly people of color scene, there was still racism within the community. Judges would favor white features, and I read in some articles that most judges were white. Huh. Hmm. That's not surprising to me, because we still have that, like, there are a lot of racial traits that, and it depends, because, you know, there was the, uh, Kardashians who kind of brought a lot of black traits into beauty standards, but it's also like a mix of traits that usually like do not exist on their own like that, you know? Mm -hmm. Like the colorism of it, of like having paler skin, but also like still that like tan look and also the like wider hips and the bigger lips. And it's like, what? How, okay. We're just going to customize ourselves to be fashionable We're now. We're going to customize. Whatever. Crazy. It wasn't until 1936 that a Black contestant won top prize for the first time. And how long had these, like, been, like, competitions at this point? Um, so the earliest, the, so late 1800s, but one source said 1869. Mm. Right, so they, so they were competitions, like, from the start? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was like a pageant. From uh, the start, it was kind of this pageant-style competition. Who will be the new Miss America? Well, kind of. Like, <laughs> 70-ish well, years. Like, when you say that, when you say that, um, at the 1967 Miss All-America Camp Beauty Pageant, hello, um, <laughs> a drag show at the Town Hall at New York University, um, Crystal Lavasia, a Black contestant, complained that the competition was rigged and that the judge were discriminating against Black and Latinx contestants after Miss Philadelphia, Rachel Harlow, a white contestant, won. So kind of like uh, Miss America. Yeah. I never really understood beauty pageants like that. Like, I was not in the pageants. I've never been in the pageant scene. I know some people do it from, like, a very young age, but, like, I don't. I don't get it. Like, drag shows are kind of their own thing because there's this really creative aspect to it. But just, like, beauty competitions in general, you're like, what? Okay. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting, <laughs> the setup it up at mm. all. I can see where it could be fun and where you could have, like, a more creative setup. But in the way that it's traditionally done, it, it doesn't seem that great. After this incident, Crystal refused to participate in drag balls, but stayed in the scene. During early 19 during the early 1970s, Lottie Labasia convinced Crystal to promote her own ball. It was then that the first ballroom house was created, House of Labasia, led by Mother Crystal Labasia. That tells me that the fact that she refused to participate any, at, in any other competitions tells me that, like, something specific happened at that competition that not only, like, was it that kind of overarching, like, 
there's clearly racism involved in this, but like, I feel like something specific had to have happened for you to be like, nope, I'm done. True. It could also be like the straw that broke the camel's back. Like she just had enough. Yeah. I feel like that one might True. be the case. I don't know that Miss Pennsylvania, I don't know if it was like something blatant that they were like, she only won because of her whiteness. I don't know. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure on the details either, so who knows? So these houses were kind of meant to emulate the style of iconic fashion houses, like think House of Gucci, hence their names. They provided a space for Black and Latinx LGBTQ people to have a safe space. They were like families with a house mother or father who would guide their quote-unquote children. It was that found family idea that we see a lot in the LGBTQ community. So were pe people were living in these houses as well? Like that's where their homes were? From my understanding, they didn't normally have like a home base. It was just kind of a group or a community that would look after each other. Ah. It's more of like a yeah. Hogwarts house. <laughs> well, I I don't I don't think Hogwarts no, is the best thing to use not. in this case, considering what J.K. Rowling does. Uh, uh, um, but That's yeah, so cute, essentially, though. I fucking love a found family. We do love a found family. It's it's very it's nice. Very nice. And it's very nice when you think about family. how a lot of these people were rejected from their own families, didn't have people to, like, look after them, and then they get accepted into this, like, house, and they have people who look after them, people who are concerned about them. It's, it's really nice to think about. When Crystal and Lottie hosted their first house ball, they called it Crystal and Lottie LaBeja presents the first annual House of LaBeja Ball. Sounds very fancy. And it was made exclusively for Black and Latinx, trans, gay, and queer people. This inspired other prominent figures in the ball scene to create their own houses. Nice. Started a movement. Friends Center. In 1973, house ballroom started to differentiate itself even more from the drag ball scene with the first gay man competitor, Erskine Christian, and with, it, and with the inclusion of more categories beyond the traditional pageant style. There was categories like face, body, runway, and performance, which would later include voguing, originally known as pop, dip, and spin. Is this where, like, lip sync for your life from RuPaul's Drag Race kind of comes from? That, like, those different categories of competition? The lip sync for your life thing is, um, Annalise might explain later. But the lip sync for your life is pretty much just, if you don't watch Drag Race, it's essentially the two bottom queens. Or sometimes in All-Stars, it'll be the two top queens. It's top or bottom, depending on what you're watching. Where they have to compete, um, with each other to determine which one of them is going to stay. So it's pretty much, in this case, it's about performance. The categories, however, are more of, like, um, in the challenges that they do. So an episode for RuPaul's Drag Race, they will have, like, a mini challenge and then, like, a big challenge. So what they do in RuPaul's Drag Race is going to be a lot different. Like, it's loosely based off of what Annalise is saying, but you can see, like, a little bit of connection. Not exactly the same, but you'll be like, oh, if you do watch the documentary Paris is Burning, you'll be like, you okay. You can see where it, like, grew out. Because they do mention um, the documentary a lot. 
Yeah, they do mention the documentary a lot in like one specific challenge. Right, I guess I'm less like lip sync for your life specifically, but like lip syncing as like a thing to do, like a performance thing. Isn't that very rude in the trans community or the drag community rather? I think I would, I would say so. Yes, I don't know how they do it in like a, a hundred percent in the how Paris is burning, but I would say yeah. I have very limited knowledge, but from little pieces. So just I go, to give yeah, that sounds fair. An aside about voguing, um, some people claim that Paris Dupree is the creator of voguing. Willie Ninja of the House of Ninja has also been known as the godfather of voguing. And if you have no idea what voguing is and have been lost during this conversation, it's a style of modern dance that mimics models posing for a camera. In Paris, it's burning. Willie Ninja talks about how voguing was a way of throwing shade or criticizing your opponent. Um, again, as we've said it multiple times before, if watch the documentary and check out some of the voguing scenes, it's like pretty incredible what they do. I feel like it's almost a tragedy that TikTok wasn't around during that time because I feel like TikTok voting voguing takedowns would have been such a thing. Voting. <laughs> Just Vogue battles constantly yes, back and exactly. forth on TikTok. <laughs> it's not too late. Oh, we God. can make this happen. TikTok people, like, they are very good at dancing. I mean, it could happen, but, like, it's com uh, Vogue competitions are already their own mm -hmm. thing, and they're intense. They That's are. True. And they, I feel like they very like, much rely uh, on being in the presence of each dizzy. other. True. Yeah. The thing though like, is, if work off the they're kind of similar in terms of communities, because, and I don't know if you're going to get into this, Annalise, but like, I know that a lot of like friends that came out of the drag community kind of got appropriated by other people of the mainly white persuasion. And that's also like a big thing with mm. TikTok dances is that a lot of like small time, usually people of color creators will create a dance and then it'll go viral. And then who people kind of appropriate that dance to make it pop like because they already have this huge following and then they just kind of rake in the views and follows because they do this popular dance and the person who actually created it kind of gets washed away it's so sad for sure and i think one of the thinking of voguing one of the examples for that is that madonna became really well known for Vogue and then doing Vogue. Yes, that's that. what I was thinking of. Yeah, when it came from this community instead. Mm. So you can see how it kind of gets glossed over. I think Lady Gaga was, she took like a lot of what she, she ended up becoming popular for from the drag community, I think. I don't know. I wasn't really into Lady Gaga at the time that she was really big. Okay. Actually, that's a, I don't know if she has, actually, because she is considered an idol in the gay community, but at the same time, I'm not too sure. So that might be, like, a good thing to check into, because I know that Madonna has kind of, like, a little thing. I'm not too sure about this. I'm only going off of, like, the parody of Madonna that they talk about in RuPaul's Drag Race called the Madonna Musical. Uh... And she talks about, like, how fascinating gay people are. Or technically, like, the script says that. I don't know how Madonna herself says about these things. So, 
Madonna, yes. Lady Gaga, I'm not too sure about. I just think Lady Gaga's just being like an I might avant-garde also be mixing lady, my essentially. Pop stars. And the gay people are I might like, be mixing good for her. Madonna up with Lady Gaga for sure. You know what? That's understandable. <laughs> understandable. Have a good day, because um, if you don't know anything about them, you'll look at them and go, yeah, white blonde ladies. <laughs> Except one's a lot older, but you know. Moving away. From that, I want to get into a little bit of Housebook Extravaganza. Um, just so we all know, Extravaganza in this case is not EX, it's just X at the start of it. Which We're is too kind cool of iconic. For the E at the beginning. It's iconic, let's be honest here. <laughs> House of Extravaganza was founded in 1982 by Hector Valle and is one of the most well-known houses. Hector Valle was a Puerto Rican gay man was known for his elegant and athletic voguing. At the time, yes. he decided that he wanted to make an entirely Latinx house in response to the almost exclusively Black houses that dominated the scene. I can kind of see what you were saying earlier about how there's still a lot of racism within this community itself. With that, because yeah. it seems like a needless separation. Exactly. People group themselves up. It's kind of what they do, unfortunately. Um, and you can see... I can also imagine just how society also presses that down onto people. One of the earliest people to join was a Puerto Rican trans woman named Angie. People in houses would take on the house's name as their last name. So Angie became known as Angie Extravaganza. She eventually emerged as the leader of the house, becoming Mother Angie. Houses would compete in houseball competitions, and many were recruited to join from bars and nightclubs or by winning a competition. In 1985, Hector died due to aid complications. And so Mother Angie then recruited mm. David Padilla, a star within the community, to leave House of Ebony to join House of Extravaganza as the father of the house. Was there, like, beef if you poached somebody from another house? Was that, like, a for sure law to do? Oh, okay. Yeah. For sure. Like something that people wouldn't be like, oh, yeah, you can just take this guy. That's fine. For sure. And there was, a like, fierce competition between the houses. Like... Oh my god, mafia time. Not really. People but... were really loyal to their houses, <laughs> and if you like betrayed the house, you're done. They show up in like a black car mafioso style, but they're all like significantly <laughs> way better dressed than any mafia has ever been. Stepping out in stilettos. Slay! A lot of uh, the House of Extravaganza's most well-known members come from this time period, including Venus Extravaganza. So we're going to shift gears and talk a little bit about Venus. Venus was born in Jersey City, New Jersey on May 22nd, 1985. She was one of five children with four brothers. An interview with her nephew tells us a little bit more about her childhood. Growing up, she liked to dress in fancy clothes and hang out with the cool kids. Two of her brothers were what could be described as alpha male types, and so there was a lot of competition in the family, and it seemed like Venus wanted to stand out away from her brothers in her own way. Fair enough. Which seems reasonable. <laughs> and Paris God, is burning. A lot. 
Yeah. That's my only thought there. Five kids is a lot. It is. It is. <laughs> so, for people who don't know, Venus is interviewed during Paris's burning. Um, and Paris's burning actually in during the documentary her death takes place and so we do have interviews of her talking about herself pretty candidly which is um where a lot of this information is comes from so venus talks about how she did her best to hide that she was transgender she started performing and dressing femininely when she was around 13 or 14 around 1978 or 1979 her family kind of started to clue into what was happening, and Venus says that she moved to New York because she didn't want to embarrass them. That's really sad. It is really sad. And I'm going to talk about this later. Mm. It's really interesting. Her family didn't, like, cut ties or completely shun her, um, but they, she wasn't able to be her authentic self with them. So it's a really interesting balancing act there. I think that's a really realistic like relationship though because i think a lot of people expect like a coming out to be like a very black and white full support or you have to cut your family off or they cut you off and more often than not i think it's a lot more like it's a complicated relationship it's not perfect but it's not like the worst ever and they're still your family so it you don't necessarily want to cut them out forever either venus was invited into the house of extravaganza by the founder hector Venus said in the documentary that for most people you get into the house by doing a ball and snatching a trophy, but that wasn't the case for Venus. She essentially was just invited into the house right away. Hector saw her and was like, I'm your father now. <laughs> <laughs> you, in my house, get in here. Go to your room. Venus tells the story about how Hector took her to Greenwich Village for her 15th birthday, got her a cake, and threw her a party. Which is oh a really God, sweet story. Oh my god, I forgot. Like, you, we're, we're talking about her being, like, 13, 14, but then I didn't even, like, equate the fact that she'd moved out that young. All on her own. That's so sad. She did. Oh my god. No wonder Hector was like, get in my house. You're a giant. <laughs> yeah. You are a minor. Come here. By 1983, Venus was performing in the ball circuit as Venus Extravaganza. After Hector passed, Angie Extravaganza took Venus under her wing as her kind of like her protege. We love a found family. We do love a found family. <laughs> Venus in the documentary is very open about how she was an escort and did sex work to make a living. This was a fairly common occupation for those in the ball scene, um, but it was dangerous. Venus described how during one job, she was attacked by a mm. client who hadn't realized she was transgender, and she had to jump out of a window in order to escape. Wow. Oh. Just wow. Oh my god. Yeah, we're making a dark turn quite fast. Venus was an aspiring mom model and talked about how she would like to have sex reassignment surgery to in her words make myself feel complete oh i do want to show i think now might be a good time i'll show you a picture of her she is fabulous in this picture oh my god the hair is very oh. 80s 
Right? Be nice. No, to her. Like she it. looks like incredible. It. <laughs> so in she's this... slaying, slay the house down. So in this photo, she's like leaned back with a heel in the air, and there's trophies in the background. She has this like gorgeously curled and blown out hair, and she's just looking iconic. <laughs> you can also see below this. I have a picture from the documentary when she was like talking about her life. This picture is actually um, in her cousin Frankie's room in her grandmother's house. Oh. Which tells you something about how she wasn't that far removed from her family. Nice. During her last interviews for Paris's Burning, um, she said that she wasn't in prostitution anymore. Um, but there were men that she would, like, go on dates with, and they would buy her gifts. She said that they were friendly gestures. We don't know much else about her work at that time. Get that bag, girl. Mm. I can't get over the guy who attacked her because he didn't realize she was trans, and I'm, I'm still thinking about it. And the fact is, like, if you told me that it happened, like, yesterday, I would have still, like, I would have been like, yes, of course that happened yesterday, because we have done absolutely no progress in some aspects in the last 40 years. Yeah. Like I said, like I was saying before, um, Vita's had a relationship with her family. It seemed like they weren't accepting, but they didn't flat out refuse to see each other. Um, essentially, they would ask Venus not to come dressed femininely like she normally would like to. She would normally come in like sweats or something. Um, she also apparently at times would skip competing in balls to babysit her nephew. They're working on it. It's not a perfect family relationship, but there's they're working on it, I guess. It's definitely different than, like you were saying before, that narrative of families completely cutting ties. There's a little more complexity in, in real life. I mean, that certainly does happen to a lot of people, but for some, it, it's a more complex um, situation. I think a lot of us, not only people in the LGBTQA plus community, but even just your average person, like, are we all completely candid with our parents and family about who we are as a, like, there are some aspects that you don't share with your parents of yourself. And I think that's kind of normal in some aspects, it's unfortunate that you have to hide that much of yourself. You know, I guess there's just degrees and what you're willing to hide from your family. Unfortunately, on Christmas Day, 1988, Venus's body was found strangled and shoved under a bed at New York's Justice Hotel. She had been there for four days before she was discovered. She was 23. Oh my god. Young. Very young. Oh my god. Oh no. There is very... So close to our age. Oh my, like, I can't it even... It is my age. I, I got... I thought you were gonna say she, like, died of AIDS, which is really sad, but it was, like, unfortunately a truth for a lot of people at the time, but it was like, no, she was, like, violently murdered, which I guess is also right. a very sad truth of the time. Mm-hmm. There's very little known about the details of her case because it is an ongoing open investigation. They did not solve this. Um, unfortunately, at the time of her death, Boo. Venus's case was not given a lot of attention. 
I, you know, we don't even know if this was like a John who she didn't really know well, or even if it was someone who she was seeing regularly at the time, like if she was in a domestic violence situation, like, is she going to call the police? Like, what are the police the, that could just bring more trouble than it's worth? Like, who could she have even gone to help get help if she was in a situation and knew about it? New York City at this time was experiencing its highest crime total record. Um, during the late 80s and early 90s. So frankly, her case was likely not seen as a priority because she was a transgender woman and people were extremely transphobic. Also because of the fact that she's kind of at an intersection of a group of people ignored and shunned by society, a person of color, transgender, and a sex worker. Most chalked this case up to being Venus not telling her client that she was transgender and getting killed when the person found out. As we know from numerous uncountable other cases, people who do sex work, um, it just doesn't get investigated when they die. And we've talked about that before with different cases here. It's really unfortunate and not fair at all. Yeah. It's really sad because a lot of people will say, well, it's a dangerous thing. Why were they doing that? as if just to blame the victim, which is horrible. And I still think about how like, she left house at like 15 and was probably doing sex work as a means of survival for many years. Exactly, exactly. Like, and it sounded like she's a 15 year old mm-hmm. on her own gonna do. Yeah, and it sounded like she was really trying to distance herself from that. Cause she had had a bad experience. She had had dangerous things happen. And it sounded like she was trying her best to get into a line of work that was safer. Angie, after the death of Venus, talked about how Venus was, quote, too wild with people on the streets. Before this incident even happened, Angie was afraid that something was going to happen to her. Um, It kind of sounds, in some cases, when it's described, like she was a little too trusting of some people or, or just the fact that she was just willing to do these things for survival that she was willing to overlook sometimes. Yeah, because you've already said here, it's not like she was the only person in this community to engage in sex work. So I wonder what Angie meant that about that. Like, what about how Venus engaged with sex work made her a particular risk in her mind? At Holy Cross Cemetery in North Arlington, New Jersey, according to her nephew, Venus's mother kept a lot of her trophies, dresses, and pictures from when she competed in walls. Her mother was proud of her, according to her nephew, even if it wasn't something that they were able to accept at the time. In retrospect, she was proud of her. Venus became a well-known figure in LGBTQ history, and it's interesting because she wasn't a particularly outspoken activist, but she is the perfect example of a transgender person who just wanted to live a normal life and, you know, live her actualized life. And I think we kind of, it's kind of like that tokenizing of a person of color in conversations about race where they have to be put in this role of educating the white people in the conversation. It's, there's this expectation, I think, for a lot of people when you're in these minority communities that you 
have to be an activist and have to like fight the good fight, which is, it's a very worthy cause, but it's also like some people just want to live their truth, even if that truth is something that people need to fight for. Some people just want to mm -hmm. have the life that they want, you know? Mm -hmm. And before we wrap up, I also wanted to talk about another case from House of Extravaganza. Aren't I disappointed enough on Elise? Oh. I'm scared, I'm scared, please! No. This one is from 2012, and I actually found it while I was researching. So, Lorena Escalera, also known as Lorena Extravaganza, was a 25-year-old Puerto Rican performer known specifically for her impersonation of Beyonce and Jennifer Lopez. She was born Get in Puerto Rico and moved... <laughs> Get it, queen. She was born in Puerto Rico and moved to New York City at 18 years old. She had been working as a makeup artist but wanted to do more as a performer and a model. On May 11, 2012, Lorena brought two men to her apartment at 43 Furman Avenue in Bushwick. At 4 a.m., a fire started and a person passing by noticed and ran into the building and started banging on doors and alerting residents. Everyone from the building, except Lorena, made it out. Can we talk about this bystander who ran into a burning know, right? building to start alerting? Like, what a hero. Like, way to go, dude. <laughs> Like, this is about to get a, to be a, re, a really tragic right story, here. but, like, good for you, guy, whoever you are. Everyone from the building made it out except Lorena. Firefighters and officers She was already dead before that fire started, wasn't she, Annalise? Firefighters and officers arrived, and the fire was put out. At 4.37 a.m., Lorena was found unresponsive, and the paramedics declared her dead at the scene. Oh, no. Firefighters had deemed the fire to be suspicious, hmm but didn't find any accelerant. There had been some work done in the building recently to the electrical system, um, but that's kind of the only clue we get for that. What is most suspicious is that the whereabouts of Lorena's visitors to this day is unknown. Mm -hmm. Allegedly, the Good Samaritan who had warned everyone about the fire had seen two men arguing at the front of the building when the fire had started. There is little else known about this case. As of right now, from what I can tell, there's no details to why Lorena had been unconscious or who those two men were. It's just suspicious. Did they ever perform an autopsy to determine if she was alive at the time the fire started? I literally could not find any more details. I found like two articles on this and nothing else. God Damn it, because you know Since they were 2012? the same thing. 2012, it's the same I, thing. They didn't oh my, pay attention to it. Oh my god. It. Yeah, I had a real hard time finding Ugh. articles that gave more details than that. I'm so mad. I'm so goddamn mad. Because I feel like we know what happened there. I feel like we know what happened. I also wanted to note that the original York Times article that discussed Lorena's death um, has been heavily criticized. Um, the opening sentences described a curvaceous woman drawing people's eyes in her, quote, gritty neighborhood. Um, what and the instead fuck of saying, is that? I know. And instead of saying named Lorena, they said Ew. called Lorena, which is weirdly Ew. dehumanizing. It's super weird. Ew. And Glad, a.k.a. Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation wrote a whole article, uh, which is in the description, um, 
it was just, it's a weird case scenario. And it really tells you that the way we're treating these people, not great. Yeah, we're that not should treating read them like the human woman beings. woman found dead in fire. Like, what? Yeah. Like, why did you have to, who took, like, weird, disgusting, poetic license to, like, write her as some weird, like, Jezebel figure when she's just a woman who died in a fire? Well, I don't think she died in the fire. I think she was already oh, dead, you but know. still. Points. Yeah. What the fuck is that? Oh, 2012. It's, it's just, it's so messed mm. up. It's so messed up. And it just really goes to show you, like, we've been saying this entire time, things have changed. But not that much. I'm so mad. I'm it's so, so mad. Sad not in the guy like who ran in the burning building to alert people, but like, oh, come on. You get like a little bit and of hope and then you go, oh, d d oh beans. Beans. I'm, I'm trying to be kid friendly, even though I've said a lot of stuff. And now there's just two guys who I think we know exactly what they're guilty of just walking around. And they're probably never going to get caught because nobody bothered to look into this at all. I'm so mm. mad. Yeah, that's what I have for you today. I really was just focusing on Venus when I first started researching, but I had to talk about Lorena when I saw that. I mean, it's it's so it's obviously a different case, but it's also like a very similar story. And the time difference, I think, says it all about how we kind of act like we're in this much more progressive age, but we really are not. Not when it comes to things like basic safety. Exactly. Yeah. I'm so mad. Annalise, I'm so disappointed. I'm sorry. I, I had mean, to bring it to people you. people are more... are more vocal now about yeah. injustice against trans people, which is great. Uh... Because back then there was like little to nothing, and if there was Unless something, you're in one you of those states where they're trying to roll back trans rights. Yeah, it's so sad because like uh, one drag race performer, uh, Eureka, recently came out as a trans woman, and she lives in Tennessee, where that's one of the states where they're actively trying to like remove rights and protection and everything. And I'm just like, oh, ma'am, I'm so sorry. Like, there's other uh trans drag race performers as well but i'm only mentioning her because a hers is very recent and b i look at tennessee and i go i don't want to see that anymore but you know uh hmm. we're so progressive everybody all the states so what if we take away your rights fuck women literally but i think the good <sighs> thing that we can take Scratch away from this or the thing that we can see as i guess the spotlight in all this darkness is the found families in these houses and the amount of creativity and mm -hmm. just how wonderful it is to have a community, um, especially when uh, your community is being shunned by society. It is nice to have people to look after you and to look after each other. Yeah. But that's where we're going to leave it today. I know that was a very brief overview of the ball scene and of the history at the time. Um, definitely recommend watching the documentary Paris is Burning, but kind of looking into it yourself. The whole like ballroom scene and community is fascinating to read about. And if you it can is. catch and we barely scratch the surface like, about the AIDS crisis either. Yeah, there's so much. There's so much.
I will say that we talked about AIDS crisis, Angie extravaganza also passed from AIDS complications in the 80s. Oh, no. Mm. That's the thing. Like the all the characters we talked about today, or they're not characters, they're people, but you know, the, all the players of the story are either died of AIDS complications or were brutally murdered. Aww. And that is like not an uncommon story at all for that community. Even today, yeah. 2012. It's not 2012, but like I'm still not over. No. And when you say that, Marina. that was 10 years ago, 11 years ago. I know. Uh. Like that goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning when I was saying like, it's so hard to remember that gay marriage was only legalized. What was it? 20... 2009? 2010? Somewhere in there? Uh, yeah, I feel very. It, no, it was guys. It was 2015. Ah, what the? No. Gay marriage? Ah. Oh no, or Lorena's murder? Actually, because no. it was definitely murder. Gay marriage, same-sex marriage, wasn't it? 2015? No, that sounds right. No, that can't be right. It was during Obama. Be... No, that makes yeah, that makes her sense. I had to for, think about it because like 2009 is early. But... One second, no. One That's second. The second one. Obama right. v. Hodges, 2015. No. That makes more sense. Yeah, because it's in the second term. And then 2016 came about and we had you know who. I was going to say, that wasn't like what? the first thing on the docket during his presidency. Oh my god, it was 2015. Oh my god. Time, everything in America right now just blends together. And with all of the shit show going on right now, it, oh my god. I just when that happened. I thought, yeah, because that's the thing. I thought we were in, like, middle school when it happened at the latest. But, oh, my God, because that just goes to prove my point more. I feel like it was so long ago, and it was so not. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was two years before our graduation. That's, oh, my God. Yeah. Mm, yeah. That's crazy. Oh, that's my God. Crazy. Well, everyone, while we have a mental crisis about the passage of time and how these rights weren't just given to begin with and had to be fought for, which is disgusting, um, we'll leave you with that. So thank you for stopping by our table of disappointment, um, pushing your chair, and we'll look forward to seeing you next time. Bye, guys. Uh, yeah, bye. Uh, call your local political leaders or if you're in one of those states where they're trying to repeal trans rights, I guess, because... 2015 was not that long ago. Bye-bye. Yeah. Bye, everyone. Trans rights are human rights.